and welcome to Way Too Twog's Bagpipe and History Podcast, where I, your host Jeremy, explores the possible repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers. Come and let's enjoy some tunes. Well, this is not exactly how I hoped to return to hosting Way Too Twog's Bagpipe and History podcast. Uh, I've been absolutely delighted to have those two stellar guest-hosted episodes from John Charles and James Moyer. Um, I am sure that if I hadn't listened to John Charles' episode, I wouldn't have felt the same way about Carry Them Along, Breach of Campbell's uh, new album. Uh, he really set me up well for recognizing and appreciating things uh, in, in that album. Uh, and James, holy cow, James's episode just felt like such a, like thinking about music and the point of it and like to feel things, uh, it's made me want to adjust, kind of return to, return to old form about how I, how I do this podcast a little bit of spend some time enjoying music and having some feelings about it. We'll see how that plays out. But, uh, anyway, so I'm going to blame that. I'm going to blame John Charles and James for why there's no episode this week is that I have a hard time figuring out how to step back in after those guys did such a stellar, such stellar episodes. Um, but, uh, yeah, the reality is I have a house guest and, uh, some sickness in the house and it's the end of the semester and I'm going to wind up. I've already kind of spent too much time in the basement playing bagpipes to try to get the episode out that I want to have out. Um, and so I don't want to do that anymore. So, um, we're going to just re-release this old episode from season four, episode 28 of Hey Johnny Cock Off Thy Beaver. It's a pretty good one. It's a good deep dive episode, but yeah, it was a couple years ago. Um, but hopefully you enjoy it. And then when we come back, uh, we will be doing the Lark in the Morning deep dive. I came so close to getting that episode out. I had like resigned myself to thinking I can't finish it yet. And I half recorded a different episode and then... Irish tune of the week on Instagram. The tune this week is Lark in the Morning. It's like, oh, this is a sign, uh, which then led me to be a really rude host. So uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to, gonna go back to socializing and go to the University of North Dakota powwow and uh, chill out a bit. And you'll get your Lark in the Morning episode in a couple weeks. So thanks again to John Charles and James, and hope everybody enjoys this blast from the past of season four, episode twenty-eight. Hello, welcome to Witch Drugs Bagpipe and History Podcast, the weekly show where I explore the likely repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers using historic music collections written for bagpipes or not, uh, and played on illin pipes, highland pipes, and whistles. Let's hear some tunes. So indeed, like I said at the end of the last episode, this week we are looking at several different settings for the melody of uh, the tune that's commonly known as some variation of Hey Johnny, Cock Up Your Beaver. This is a good time to point out, like if you're listening to this, you might already be worried about it. Um, but yeah, the first half of this episode is fine. The As much as that tune sounds like it, it isn't a sexual innuendo of any sort. Uh, so in the 18th century, that would be a totally fine thing to say. Um, but I understand that nowadays, uh, those things, all those words carry a lot of innuendo to them. Um, but for the most part, like I said, there won't be any kind of explicit discussion of slang or innuendo the first half of the show. I kind of went on a deep dive into the history of when those words became slang. And so we're going to have kind of the last half of the show, uh, is what I'm calling, uh, dirty words about clean things. So just kind of a, a look into slang and metaphor and that kind of thing in the 18th, 19th, and 20th century. Um, so anyway, so that's coming at the end. So you can listen relatively comfortably um, before then if you're worried about people overhearing. Uh, but yeah, so the tunes we're going to start with, we're looking at, like I said, many different settings. The first one is from the 17th century. So 1686, there's a Dancing Master uh, publication, and the tune is called Johnny Cock Thy Beaver. The next tune I'm going to play is a variation from O'Carolan, so I'm not sure how well-traveled um, 
Turlo, Turlo, I think is how you say his name, O'Carolan, uh, was the kind of famous blind harpist from Ireland that was around in the 16, late 1600s. Uh, he passes away in 1738. Wrote a bunch of just beautiful music, uh, including supposedly a bunch of variations to uh, Hey Johnny, Cock Up Your Beaver. So I'm going to play through those. They're sort of a beast. They're pretty challenging. Uh, and then I'm going to play a William Dixon tune. So that's 1733. And... Uh, the William Dixon title uh, that is kind of used in Matt Seattle's book is called Waddies Away, but it's clearly the same melody. Uh, and then the next tune, chronologically, we're going to be looking at James Oswald's setting for Johnny Cock Up Thy Beaver. And James Oswald, again, has a pretty beastishly difficult uh, setting for it. Uh, and then we'll look at the Scots Musical Museum and kind of read the song that Robert Burns put to this melody uh, many years after it had already been popular. Uh, and then part of that, we will cut over to some more thematic things and listen to a couple tunes about hats. Uh, so we're going to listen to a 1757 setting from Robert Bremner. Uh, that's a setting from the Scots Bonnet, uh, a setting for a tune called Scots Bonnet. Uh, and then we're going to do an O'Farrell setting for another tune called the Blue Bonnet. So that'd be about 1807 or so. And then we're going to have a chat about history, and after that I'm going to sing a body tune in, like, in, it is gen genuinely body. Uh, Cock Up Thy Beaver is all about folding up the brim of a beaver hat. Um, the tune I'm going to sing at the end, uh, The Bonnie Black Hair, is definitively a body tune from at least the 1830s. I found some broadsides, uh, or... I think the earliest broadside that's got a date is the 1840s, but that's just hard to date broadsides. But kind of an old 19th century tune, um, so that'll be what ends the episode. But like I said, if you're squeamish about uh, learning about this stuff, you can not worry about it and just skip it. So we've got a lot of tunes to get through today, so let us start with the 1686 um, rendition of Johnny Cocktail Beaver from this dance uh, book, The Dance Master. time I play a tune that is in William Dixon uh, in the Master Piper, I feel like a, a great debt of gratitude to Matt Seattle's work and kind of putting it together. Uh, and that's the same this week. However, I also added a new resource this week. The only reason I found the 1688, uh, 1686 Dance Master setting was from looking at John Glenn's book. And kind of ironically, most of the tunes that I link to are either in the John, are generally in the John Glenn collection at the National Library of Scotland. So John Glenn was a music historian, uh, I would, I'm comfortable saying, he did a lot of scholarship on kind of the history of Scottish melodies, wrote a great book around 1900 called uh, Early Scottish Melodies. And he has like little write-ups about uh, many of the popular tunes uh, that I've already played on the podcast or on the show or in general. Uh, so I've got a link to that in the show notes. I highly recommend kind of poking around there if you got the time. It's uh, pretty illuminating. Uh, but I had an entry for Cock Up Thy Beaver. John Glenn thinks that this tune might have begun as an insult, um, but I don't know that that really gels um, too much with it. Uh, I don't know. The Burns poem seems to. Uh, well, we'll talk about that later, but it, maybe there's like a story about it making fun of people from Scotland, like heading into the lowlands or into England and not knowing how to wear a, you know, a hat or something like that. 
um, you know, because a flop hat that poor folks would wear or peasants or farmers, you know, those get saggy. Um, but when you cock them up or make them into a tricorn, they stay nice and taut. And But they're way less effective. So, like, any laborer that's wearing a hat is going to want that brim to keep the rain and the sun out of your eyes. But if you're supposed to pass for a gentleman, um, certainly by the 18th century anyway, you want to pop them puppies up, making that hat useless. So maybe that's an insult against Scots, but it is clear from looking at how many places this tune shows up, it is popular in Scotland uh, and the borders for a good long bit, whether it was begun as an insult or not. Uh, actually, you know what? Let's let's do some border piping of this tune. Uh, I was first interested in this tune because it, it is about hats, and I spent a lot of time in my past talking about the fur trade and talking about hat making and talking about Scots kind of leaving Scotland to engage in corporate interests and, you know, trade and that sort of thing. And like, especially the Robert Burns song is all about that. And so I wanted to play this, uh, play this tune uh, and I knew that it was old. Um, and so it was kind of fresh on my fingers several years ago when I visited uh, Fort William Historical Park and uh, my buddy Abe, who I've talked about a couple times on the podcast, uh, kind of clued me into a set of border pipes that he had gotten the fort to buy. And so I got to play a set of Nate Banton border pipes probably 10, 11, 12 years ago. So it's the only time I've actually played a border pipe. Um, and my buddy Jared uh, took a video of it kind of halfway through. So here's just a clip of me playing Honest to Goodness border pipes um, and, you know, the same tune, Hey Johnny, Cock Up Your Beaver. So yeah, it's it's audio recorded off of a video clip, so kind of ends abruptly and isn't the the greatest quality. sure whose version uh, of this tune I was listening to that like it got onto my fingers at that point. Uh, it was kind of interesting looking at the Dancing Master book. I played it on Practice Channer um, partially because I, I found the tune kind of late in this process of making the podcast, but also because it's a little tricky. It's, you know, 1680s, they wrote music in unconventionally from how we're used to reading it now. So I had to take some licenses uh, kind of shifted all the notes up a, a line, um, which feels like that's good, uh, good companion to William Dixon, who, you know, famously it's a four stave, uh, four line stave that the William Dixon tunes were written on originally. So there's a certain amount of interpretation and adjustments that you have to make. And Dixon even wrote that in the book that he kind of expected people to have to move things around and kind of expect that the notes are all one note higher. So that's kind of what I wound up doing with the 1686 dance tune. Um, speaking of adjustments, so this this next setting, I'm surprised at how far this tune reaches. Like I said, O'Carolyn has a setting for it. Uh, so Donald O'Sullivan came out with a book that was supposed to be a list of all the tunes that O'Carolyn actually composed. And in that book is included a setting for uh, Johnny Cock Up Your Beaver with a bunch of variations. And so the variations are attributed to, um, to O'Carolyn. They're intense. I worked at them very hard <laughs> for a long time and got very frustrated with it. And basically kind of ruined my day yesterday because it was so challenging. Um, but today I came back at it and, and figured it out. Um, so I got it from this amazing website uh, called, was it Old Music? The oldmusicproject.com. There's links in the descriptions. So be sure to check it out. Um, but yeah, oldmusic.com is a great resource. Uh, from near as I can tell, it is kind of put together from when, uh, so it, it sure seems like Vince Brennan found a copy of all these O'Carolyn um, tunes in like a thrift shop and transcribe them into ABC format so you can access them or access them, uh, which is great. He also changed the keys. So as much as the 1686 setting had a ch uh, probably had a key change, um, the setting of O'Carolyn definitely has a key change. But uh, still a good tune, and I think we're listening to... I'm kind of putting it here as second oldest in the variation list. Uh, O'Carolyn passed away, like I said, in 1738. Um, so I, I feel like it's likely that he would have made this tune um, 
I'm just going to go on a whim and, and say that it was before William Dixon's uh, publication of Waddy's Away. Uh, so we're having it here now. Um, but yeah, Carolyn mostly plays around Ireland. I'm not sure how much he traveled in the rest of the British Isles, but kind of was well known to travel around Ireland. He was criticized at the time for playing kind of a new style of music. Um, so maybe playing border tunes or um, Scottish tunes was part of that. I'm not quite sure. Um, but it really is kind of a lovely setting. I don't play the last variation because it's just like it. It's the same. His last variation is an earlier variation, but one octave above. And that would put me, I'd have to start on the third D. And at one point you go up to... Um, so it starts on the third D, the last variation, and then it also has a high, uh, a, four, a third um, E. And, you know, I I can play those notes when they're slow, but O'Carolyn has them as part of runs. It's like, you know, I'm just going to skip it. I think the second to last part is is really beautiful. Uh, and so I just finished by kind of returning to the, to the ground med- uh, melody. So anyway, here is O'Carolyn's setting uh, his, for variations for Cock Up the Beaver. you know it's obviously written for uh the harp not for illin pipes but the the variations that uh that were done to to put it in a good key really really work out um so <laughs> like i'm actually re-recording the speaking part here because when i first i kind of found out about the carolyn setting right towards the end uh well after i had recorded the audio 
uh, or right before I found, right before I recorded the audio, I found it. I looked at it. I said, "Oh, that looks familiar. Uh, that just looks like any other old variation." So uh, I'm just not going to bother playing it because I'm pretty sure it's just Oswald's variation that uh, Carolyn's doing something with. Decidedly not, uh, and it's definitely its own different uh, kettle of fish. So uh, let's move on to you know the the setting that is maybe closest to where the tune kind of comes from, I think, which was the border region. So this is William Dixon's setting for the tune uh, called Waddy's Away. Uh, Matt points out in the liner notes of the Master Piper, his William Dixon book, that uh, a lot of the tunes have different names, and this one also had the name Dix Away, but there was another tune named Dix Away, and uh, so they went with the alternate title that was listed in Dixon of Waddy's Away. Anyway, here you can hear me playing it on Highland Pipes again. Tell you, I feel it's a little lazy, um, not uh, really talking about this or thinking about it too much. But the like, it is. It's remarkable how many different variations there are of this tune that all work out pretty dang well. Um, I feel like this would be a really golden opportunity to do a close analysis and make some kind of grandiose claim. Um, I'm gonna leave that to y'all though. That's sort of the job here, right? I'll play a bunch of tunes or a, a tune several different settings and. You have the epiphanies about it, and then get back to me. Tell me what the smart thing you realized about it was, because 
uh, yeah, don't have time for that <laughs> right now. I spent too much time reading a book of uh, 18th century slang terms this week to, to do a deep music dive. Um, so with that, let's do one more variation still. Uh, this one's from James Oswald's uh, Caledonian Pocket Companion. Uh, he calls it Johnny Cockrop Thy Beaver. Uh, this is the one from about 1750-ish. Uh, I make a little bit of a mistake in here, and similar to Bunting, I don't uh, play one of the variations that just didn't 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 seem possible. <laughs> um, remember the Piper Sunday with Mick O'Brien? He talked about how, like, he's when he was working on a project to uh, play Ellen Pipes with an orchestra with a set of music written specifically for Ellen Pipes. Unfortunately, it was written for Ellen Pipes in the sense that, uh, like the composer asked Mick exactly what it was capable of and then wrote all of those things. And so like some things that shouldn't have been possible. And so Mick said, this is impossible. And the composer is like, well, no, you're going to do it. And so he went away and just trained himself for months and then he could, could play it. Um, and that's sort of where Oswald and Carolyn's setting come in. You know, both of those aren't written for Ellen Pipes. Those are uh, written for piano or fiddle or hautboy um, or oboe or flute. Uh, and there's, you know, there's there are some limitations. Uh, I was kind of listening back and thinking about Nicholas and I's conversation where I say, this instrument can do anything. It's just amazing. And he said, yeah, well, no, it's incredibly limited. And I think, you know, my first instrument was Highland bagpipes, really. And that's just such a limiting instrument that once, like that was one of the things that attracted me to Illin pipes, um, is you get two octaves, two octaves, and you can tongue the notes and all these things. It just feels like you're playing a whole brand new thing um, compared to Highland pipes. But, you know, looking through all these old tunes that are written for flute and piano, it's like, oh, no, there's really some things I can't do. Uh, anyway, so here is James Oswald's setting for Johnny Cock Up Thy Beaver.
like I said, a lot of times uh, when I was looking for historic tunes, it was always, you know, looking for tunes that they played in the past or tunes that were popular, but also looking for tunes that could lead towards a story. And uh, Cock Up Thy Beaver just really felt like a useful tune for talking about the changes that were going on um, kind of post Culloden in Scotland and kind of in the early days of, um, well, not early days, but in that just in that era of British colonialism and the role that Scots played in it. Um, and especially the way, uh, Burns, Burns song really always brought that out in me. And, uh, you know, when I got a hold of Scott's, uh, musical museum, which is a project that Burns worked heavily on, you know, Burns was a poet, but he's also just such a collector of folk melodies and, um, songs and things. And, uh, I just loved this book, uh, this is before I really knew how to use the internet to find archives like exist now. I'm not sure that they existed then. Some did, uh, some probably didn't. But so I was using um, Joseph Wrightson's work, which was great. Joseph Wrightson wrote great stuff about music, but he rarely included the actual notes. And that's one of the cool things about Scott's Musical Museum is it actually includes the sheet music, um, the notation for all these melodies. But yeah, Burns went around and collected all these songs. Uh, and melodies, and then often just wrote his own, you know, said his own words to it. And so that's the case with uh, Cock Up Your Beaver, as he calls it. But yeah, so his his song, it's a short, it's a short song, um, but it is. When first my brave Johnny came to this town, he had a blue bonnet and wanted the crown. But now he's gotten a hat and a feather. Hey, brave Johnny lad, cock up your beaver. Cock up your beaver and cock it fo- so spruce over the border and give them a bruise there's somebody there will teach better behavior hey brave johnny lad cock up your beaver and you know blue bonnets you know it's we associate blue bonnets with uh, jacobites now but you know everybody wore a blue bonnet <laughs> it's the white cockade that matters more than anything else but certainly it's a you know a hat that's pretty common around Scotland. If you look at any of these amazing David Allen paintings, just everybody's wearing a bonnet. Um, and so, you know, this is, but it seems like it's hearkening back to a, um, you know, to a Jacobet era of, you know, trying to take over England or returning back to a time when there was a, a Scottish king on the throne of England. Um, but, you know, the Scots really wound up making, some Scots wound up making a lot of money in kind of British imperial functions uh there's a really awesome book uh called scotland's empire by a historian named tm divine and it basically talks about how after the durian scheme where all of these scots had these wealthy scots had tried to set up a colony in panama and it failed miserably um panama is not the greatest place in the world to try to set up a robust wool trade um but it, it was it also traded it failed because of sabotage like um english People were doing everything they could, uh, English interests to like keep people from, you know, shop, like supplying the Durian colony or trading with them. And uh, eventually, basically, all the wealth in Scotland got lost in this Durian scheme. And um, what wound up happening is wealthy British interests kind of bailed out that in exchange for Scottish Parliament. And that's why the Scottish Parliament went away. Um, but despite that, um, many Scots wound up, you know, working on the front lines of the British imperial system, whether it was in India or Africa or the Americas. And the Northwest Company, you know, the fur traders I talked about are sort of in that same boat of, um, are kind of, I don't know, not necessarily coming from wealthy folks, but certainly, uh, Scots that are descendant from Jacobites or are Jacobites themselves that wind up really becoming the front lines of, you know, pushing the British imperial needs of, you know, expanding into the interior of Canada. Um, yeah, and that sort of thing. So anyway, this, this tune, Cock Up Your Beaver, just felt perfect. It, not only did it talk about beaver hats, um, but it also kind of talked about this movement of Scots to England is, is how I interpreted Burns' song. And so I always wanted to, um, yeah, I always wanted to play it for visitors, but it was one of those things because it sounds so much like there's a double entendre going on. I never could, like, it's not a tune you can talk to a room full of, you know, people about without them all laughing at you. Um, and when you're, you know, working for the park service and trying to make a program that's accessible for whatever fourth graders, <laughs> it doesn't really 
it's harder to do. Um, anyway, so anyway, so let's do some tunes that are related um, to the bird song. So I wanted to look at some blue bonnet tunes. Uh, I found one. There's blue bonnets over the border. is a pretty common Highland pipe tune. I didn't really find a satisfactory setting for it in time. Uh, but what I do have is Bremner's 1757 setting for the tune called Scott's Bonnet. Now again, Bremner is mostly writing, I think, for um, flute or fiddle. But uh, here it is on Ellen Pipes. So this is our Scott's Bonnet. So the thing that uh, the Johnny is going into the town with wearing a bonnet, but he's going to get a beaver hat with a feather instead. Anyway, so here is Robert Bremner's Scott's Bonnet. So Burns mentions blue bonnets, or bonnets, um, and so there's a setting in O'Farrell for a tune called The Blue Bonnet. Now, O'Farrell occasionally will mark uh, where a tune comes from, and O'Farrell marks that this tune is from Ireland, or it's Irish. So I'm not sure that this is about, this might be completely unrelated, but uh, when I first set about recording tunes for this week, I didn't know I was going to find an O'Carolyn setting, which feels pretty Irish, so I felt like I needed to do something Irish. So here is O'Farrell's setting uh, for the Blue Bonnet. Um, O'Farrell occasionally makes comments on what speed you should play it at, so he writes slow for this tune. Uh, I feel like I've seen it on the session or something as a reel, but uh, I play it pretty slow, because that's what O'Farrell says. Um, after this tune, we'll go straight into the nice long chat, um, kind of about the history of slang in Britain and Canada, to a certain extent, uh, and Scotland and England and a little bit, I guess Ireland doesn't get into this discussion, so it's mostly a Scottish-English-American thing, but uh, still pretty interesting. So anyway, here is uh, the Blue Bonnet from O'Farrell. So those are our tunes. We've got Blue Bonnets and Scott's Bonnet and many different takes of uh, Cock Up Thy Beaver. And now we're going to talk about the history of slang a little bit. So uh, 
I feel like these are dirty words for clean things, but uh, if you are of sensitive ears and you are offended by the slightest bit of thing, it would be, seem like a minor miracle if you still listen to the show, if that was the case. But uh, anyway, this is sort of your, uh, I don't know, NSFW warning that maybe don't listen to this out loud in the workplace or around small children. Um, so yeah, believe me when I say that Cock Up Thy Beaver is not uh, uh, it's not a double entendre. Uh, and I say that confidently because beaver already had a meaning in the 18th century, uh, and beaver meant hat. Like, that is what it was known as. If you look it up in slang, um, and slang dictionaries, uh, beaver is a hat. That's just sort of shorthand for it. Um, cock is already, you know, represents the male member and maleness, so it, th- there could be an entendre that way, but it's not as clear an entendre if it is one. And I kind of think it just isn't an entendre. So, I have gone on a bit of a deep dive trying to figure out the history of when beaver came to be understood as slang for, um, you know, a woman's privities, uh, which was my favorite uh, kind way to say that, that I found kind way. That's the wrong thing to say. But uh, anyway, um, when did beaver start becoming slang for vagina or pubic hair? Uh, and I found some really cool stuff, and it seems like for sure it's the 1920s, and it's hard to really find any evidence of that beforehand. So we're going to talk about the 1920s and kind of what led to uh, the vagina being referred to as a beaver, at least from the 1920s on, where that origin started. But in the meanwhile, I spent a lot of time looking through this Vulgar Tongue Dictionary, uh, Gross's 1811 Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue, which I'll have a link in the show notes, and just found some really interesting things. So I, I was interested in exploring kind of the history of vulgar language, like what was an entendre for uh, a vagina at this time. And I'm going to switch to 18th century slang now, because it's just one of my favorite things ever. I'm a little confused by it. Um, but yeah, the the term that Gross uses most often to refer to, you know, a woman's privities or a vagina is the monosyllable. So when I say monosyllable for the rest of the episode, that's what I'm referring to is uh, women's genital uh, genitalia. Yeah. Um, so monosyllable shows up as kind of the shorthand for all these definitions. I was quite surprised by them. Another surprise music one. The black joke is uh, slang for the monosyllable, according to Gross. So uh, we played the black joke, I think, on an episode a while back. It's one of my favorite tunes out of O'Farrell. Uh, it's this little this little number here. If you recognize that. Uh, anyway, probably won't be talking to visitors or audience members about what that tune means, but I'm going to keep playing it. Um... So yeah, there's the the black joke. Uh, another one that was interesting that kind of muddies the waters of cock up thy beaver is hat. Um, but we're going to come back to hat for for why hat is interesting and why it is code for the monosyllable. The other one that was interesting was doodle sock or bagpipe is uh, listed as slang for the monosyllable. Uh, it says specifically doodle sock. Or uh, the translation or the, the definition in the Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue says, you know, doodle sock is a Dutch bagpipe, also the woman's monosyllable. So, uh, yeah, so so who knew? Uh, bagpipes are slang for uh, the monosyllable. Just didn't, didn't see that one coming, I guess. There's a myth for a long time. I I've heard it before, uh, and, and it just reeks of a myth started in a museum by people that are thinking but not researching um and that is that beaver became slang for vaginas because of merkins and i've even seen it attributed to a tour guide in philadelphia on one of the like you know liberty walks or whatever um not attributed by name just saying i heard this by a tour guide here um if you're not familiar with merkins somehow they kind of we're pretty internet famous for a while there. It's a wig for your pubic hair, and it's got a long history, and it's sort of hard to track down specifics. It's not a thing that gets written about in great detail, but it does show up in the all the way back in the 1600s, if not earlier, in dictionaries and in you know works of art and theater, rather. Not like paintings of American, but in uh, plays they reference it, and pieces of literature and that sort of thing and yeah so what its function was the the way that this is talked about a lot is that if it was a way to have pubic hair still 
if you had lice. So you'd get rid of your lice, and then you'd be embarrassed about how bald you were, uh, that your pubic hair was gone, and so you'd wear a merkin. And merkins were more hygienic then. You could, you know, continue to be clean-shaven, and then you could clean the merkin, you know, by delousing it or putting it in boiling water, that sort of thing, uh, and then you could put it back on and still be, you know, up here clean and, and healthy. This is often associated, like, the way people talk about it online, I haven't found any real historical records for this, but there's sort of a logic to it that, um, you know, prostitutes with STDs would, you know, they'd lose pubic hair as a result of infection, or they'd get crabs, and so they'd shave off the pubic hair. So um, covering your pubic mound there with a little patch of, of artificial hair would cover up any sores or any indication that you were not healthy. I don't know, like I said, this just this all seems a little too... Uh, I don't know. I haven't found anything really hard proof evidence about this. So the story goes, according to tour guides uh, in Philadelphia anyway, is that, you know, they used to make beaver fur merkins. And so women would wear these um, merkins out of beaver fur. And that's why we call the vagina a beaver nowadays. But the whole point of a merkin is that you can delouse it and kind of clean it. And it's supposed to look like human hair. And I feel like people telling the story haven't spent a lot of time around beaver fur because it does not in any stretch of the imagination pass for pubic hair. Uh, like the perk of beaver is it is the, you know, it's got some of the softest fur in the world. Like literally the under fur of the beaver is so soft. It's got so many of these microfibers on it that if you put a little bit of water and some pressure on it, it'll mat, it'll turn into felt. That is why they made hats out of it. That's why hats are called beavers because there is just nothing better for making a felt hat than beaver. So the idea of having this fur that is incredibly um, responsive to liquid and pressure being worn as a wig to imitate human um, pubic hair, like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, rubbing your legs back and forth, like, even if, like, if we take it to the nth degree of, like, you're wearing this to pass for a healthy, to have a healthy body of pubes in order to engage in sex work, sex work would be a very sweaty thing with a lot of pressure. You'd get one use out of every merkin if it was made out of beaver before it looked like just a felted ball, like you had a giant dreadlock. That does not look healthy. That's not going to do what you need it to do. Uh, same, you can't take it off and dump it in boiling water because it'll felt up and it won't look anything like hair anymore. So I think this beavers were made into merkins. I've, I've seen references to goat and horse and human hair uh, for merkins. Again, not in a way that I'm comfortable with in terms of like level of documentation. But I just, I think this merkin story is not accurate. That merkins were around in the 18th century and women wore them and therefore they were made out of beaver fur and that's why we call vaginas beavers. I think that's, that's just a tour guide looking for a good story. I would love to be wrong about this. So if you have detailed information on the history of the merkin, uh, get in touch with me. I would love to uh, find out that I'm wrong. And they totally made merkins out of the guard hairs of beaver, uh, or there was luxury merkin lines. I just, I'm not seeing it. Anyway, so that is to say, uh, I don't think that the name beaver goes back quite as, as far as people say they do. Now, interestingly, one of the other slangs for the monosyllable that shows up in Gross's 1811 Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue is hat. And it says that, and I think there's a bit of kind of a double entendre, even in this definition that Gross includes. There's a lot of entendres in Gross's definitions. I have lost so much time to look into this dictionary. Um, but what Gross says is um, hat. So hat, uh, or old hat, is defined as an old woman's privities, semicolon, because frequently felt, period. I, I think that's, I mean, that's talking about, like, I think that's making a joke about felting. Like, a hat is made out of felt, and an old hat is a vagina that is often felt. So, therefore, like, I think that's what's, I think that's the wordplay going on there. Um, so, that complicates my, you know, cock up your beaver a little bit of saying that that's definitely not a, um, 
that's definitely not a double entendre. Like, man, maybe, but it's a bit of a stretch. And I have to say, this slang is like Cockney and uh, Thieves Can't and a little bit more English. And this, this tune is supposedly kind of bordery and, and Scotland in nature. Uh, so some other interesting uh, code or slang for the monosyllable, uh, especially like from a fur trade setting, we spend a lot of time talking about beavers if you're talking about the fur trade, because beaver are sort of a big deal. Uh, and so much so that the partners of the Northwest Company formed a fraternity called the Beaver Club. So the Beaver Club might get some chuckles when you when you mention it, but like I said, I really don't think there's a double entendre in the name Beaver Club. However, there is a double entendre in the toast that the Beaver Club gave. Uh, so it seems like well, not seems like what the Beaver Club was. It was a drinking club. They get together all these guys that had uh, spent the winter beyond Grand Portage or beyond Lake Superior. And then you're eligible to join the Beaver Club, and it's just like a stupid, say stupid, but it's like a stupid frat where you've got to wear a medal on days where there's going to be a meeting, and you show up and you just drink yourself stupid. There's all kinds of rituals that you do around. There's accounts of these Beaver Club meetings that are hilarious, involving. Um, kind of mock canoe races where people are getting drunk and jumping up on tables and pretending to, to race using their canes as paddles and just destroying everything. And um, yeah, it's, it's a, they're an interesting crowd. Um, but the name Beaver Club isn't an entendre, but they have these five required toasts. And I heard the story from one of the, well, from the Silver or Tinsmith at uh, Fort William Historical Park. I had heard him say this but I, I was a little skeptical of it. I don't know why I didn't trust Joe Winterburn off right, but I've kind of confirmed some things by using the slang dictionary. So there's these five toasts that the fur traders give at every beaver club meeting. There's the toast to the fur trade and all of its branches, uh, to voyagers, wives, and mistresses or something, um, to the king, to absent members, and to the mother of all saints. And the mother of all saints seems like you know, like on its on its head, it's like we're talking about the king, we're talking about the fur trade and all of its branches. Like these are big topics. So the mother of all saints, sure, that's I guess that must be the Virgin Mary is who we're toasting here. But it's worth mentioning that most of the partners in the Northwest Company were not Catholics; <laughs> they are Protestants uh, of some sort or another. So the idea that they would kind of give this very Catholic-sounding toast doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but the fact that it's kind of a body group of dudes talking about the good old days when they were way off in the interior of Canada, where they got up to some horrible things um, with indigenous women, like the mother of all saints is also slang for the monosyllable or for a vagina. So I think that there's kind of a built-in double entendre or not, maybe not even all that double, just a, you know, just something that would pass muster. Um, if somebody overheard it, it wouldn't be as blatant as it was to everybody in the know. Uh, anyway, so we've got the Beaver Club that ha doesn't have a double entendre in the title, but does have a double entendre, or does have a secret meaning in the toasts, uh, I'm willing to bet. Um, anyway, some interesting stuff there. Um, some other just fun things that I found. Uh, well, so looking at Beaver in that 1811 slang book, uh, it says that it's the definition, it's defined as an afternoon's luncheon or also a fine hat. Beavers for making the best hats, end quote. Um, fart catcher. I think that this just makes me so, I don't know why this makes me laugh so much, but fart catcher is slang for a valet or footman since they're always walking behind the master or mistress. Just really like that one. Uh, and then rabbit catcher is uh, slang for a midwife. Anyway, so another... So, so where did beaver come from then is sort of the question. So this is, this is the weird little bit of a hole that I went down is trying to figure out when beaver started being slang for, for vagina. And I'm not the only person that has done this. I found a really interesting article or kind of forum post from this uh, forum called uh, English Language and Usage Stock Exchange Forum. Stack exchange form, rather. Uh, and people were asking, you know, when did Beaver become slang for this? And some people posted a bunch of newspaper articles from American newspapers and Australian newspapers from the 1920s, kind of dating this and, and figuring it out. And essentially what happened, well, I, I did some more research because all of the sources were from Australia or America, and I wanted to see if I could find it in some British newspapers. So uh, what happened is in 1922... 
I don't know if anybody's familiar with the game, like the slug bug game, where you drive down a road and you see a Volkswagen bug and you scream slug bug yellow and then you punch whoever's in the car with you really hard. There was essentially a game like that called Beaver. Um, so here's a newspaper article from Gloucester Citizen from Gloucester, England, Wednesday, May 17th, 1922. And the article is titled, Looking for Whiskers. Bearded men find themselves unwantedly popular at Cambridge just now. They are gravely or hilariously saluted by undergraduates with cries of beaver. This is part of a game which the young wits of the university have devised in which points are scored by the player who first sights a bearded person. So 1922, this becomes a weird thing that Cambridge students are doing. Um, some of the newspaper articles that were kind of linked from America give a little bit fuller picture. Uh, or it seems like it starts as a, we should celebrate beards, and so we're going to shout beaver in celebration of these things, and very quickly descends into chaos of just, you can't walk down the street in Cambridge and eventually London without, if you have a beard, without getting just shouted down mercilessly. Uh, people had a whole point system, depending on what type of beaver you saw, you got a certain number of points, and then if you got the most points in that session of the game the other person had to buy drinks is sort of where this game comes from. And there's some kind of funny articles. Um, let's see. We've got a 1922 in December article from a Washington DC newspaper saying that the beaver is near extinction because of the beaver game. So people had been shaving already in October of 1922. Another Washington newspaper said that King George was going to have to shave his beaver because the Royal beaver was the most, you got the most points for that. Um, yeah, so it's it kind of becomes harassment, and they talk about men just kind of racing themselves to get to a barber to get rid of their, their beavers. And this even made its way into Scotland. Uh, I looked at, I found a newspaper article from October of 1922 from Dundee, Scotland. It's, the t article is called Day by Day, and it seems like it's a humorous, kind of a humorous um, publication that's just listing kind of funny things about the day. And... <laughs> So this is what I really liked. Uh, so again, this is printed in Scotland. Uh, it says, quote, There's absolutely no truth in the story that when a royal figure wearing a beard entered a Cambridge function, the undergraduates rose to their feet as one and shouted, Royal Beaver! Game, set, match! Um, yeah, that's... That tickles me. Uh, 1934. So we're talking 12 years later. Uh, I found kind of a funny article where a, a guy, in, again, in the Gloucester Citizen was complaining about... Uh, the title of the article is When Aussies Wore Whiskers. He was talking about when... The, I think it's like the Australian cricket team showed up and didn't realize the kind of hell that you would get for having a beard. And so everybody started screaming at them, <laughs> calling them beaver until they shaved. Uh, and it's just kind of funny. So 1934 and the guy, the way this article is written is sort of in like caricature language. And it really much reads like a back in my day, everybody wore a beaver proudly. Um, so we've already got this kind of big decline by 1934. Uh, and then all the way into 1941, uh, there's another article in the Gloucester Citizen, uh, ban on Hitler mustache, but beavers are popular. And so this is all about how the Navy is starting to wear beards again, but not mustaches, which had kind of come and gone in fashion quite quickly, largely because of Hitler. Um, so you see, there's kind of a rapid response. So that's all the way in the 40s. They still remember beaver as slang for that. But uh, there are accounts of kind of beards starting to disappear in the like 1922, 23, 24. There's newspaper articles about how they're just extinct. You can't see them anymore. And so how this comes to be associated with um, a vagina or pubic hair, there is this limerick. <laughs> and the limerick is from 1927. So we're a full five years after uh, the beaver game gets started. And so the, I can't figure out where this limerick was printed. Sorry, I just need to wet my throat a bit. Um, can't figure out where this limerick was printed. It's It occurs now in this Woodsworth, Woodsworth collection. Uh, let me get that name right for you. Yeah, Woodsworth Book of Limericks. But I, I couldn't find a date for it. But I saw other places it was listed as 1927, so I'm going with that. And it kind of makes sense with the timeline of how this all worked out. So it says... Uh, okay, so this limerick. There was a young lady named Eva who went to the ball as Godiva, but a change in the lights showed a tear in her tights, and a low fellow yelled, 
Bieber. So it's the the people say like, oh, this is the first time that we have in print that people are, you know, calling a vagina a beaver. But he's calling a vagina beaver because of the game of screaming beaver whenever you see a beard is what the reference is. So anyway, so that's your uh, long history of how beaver came to be known as, uh, or vaginas came to be referred to as beavers. I don't think it has a fur trade or a, you know, a beaver connection in the 18th century, but I'm not quite ready to say that it never happened. Um, beaver was already kind of well understood to mean a cocked hat or to be a hat in general for a long time. But the other, some of the other slangs for, um, the monosyllable or women in general are, kind of small, cute, furry critters, like rabbits, um, the black hair, or the coney, and then the cunny, and the debate of, like, is cunny from um, the C word? I guess I'm going to say the C word rather than saying the C word, uh, or if cunny is from coney for, for rabbits, I'm sort of unsure. But and then 1811, I couldn't see cunny actually in the 1811 slang book. This whole book that's about dirty words in 1811, even they didn't say the C word. They blinked it out at C star NT. It's like, okay, I guess I'm not going to say the C word. Um, anyway, so cunny thumbed in this slang book is to double one's fist with a thumb inwards like a woman. So cunny is like, that's the only, the closest thing we get to cunny being associated with a woman. Um, so cunny is associated with rabbits. Uh, and then it seems like, well, rabbit, otter, beaver, like all these things might have had that connotation. So it's, it's conceivable. I'm, I'm willing to be wrong about uh, cock up thy beaver, but I, I think it's far more common for, a beaver to mean a cocked hat in this time period. So without further ado, you'll have been very patient listening to my uh, history of dirty words about clean things. And I think I'm going to go out with an actual body song. Uh, this is a tune. It's kind of interesting. So this is a folk song or ballad. I really, I used to like to sing a lot, um, but it is so dirty. Like it is just like, it's got a double entendre, so it's it's called The Bonnie Black Hair. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's gone through a bit of a revival, uh, I think, relatively recently. In the 60s, A.L. Lloyd recorded it, and it's just, it's he does just a bang-up job. Um, I found some broadsides for it that are horrible. Well, they're not horrible. They're just very typical 19th century and 18th century broadside ballads. And, like, when romance shows up in a ballad, it is always a thing that is just pretty gross and uh it just really plays into uh, rape culture and this idea that uh, there, there are many ballads about a man kind of forcing himself on a woman or surprising a woman and then she turns out to really like it like we can see how that is obviously a bad thing um to reinforce throughout all your culture um and so Hale lloyd's version comes from an irish laborer uh, in the 20th century, who moved to England from Ireland. He worked as a potato digger and heard this tune from an Englishman. So it's it's an English tune, uh, but it's it's a lot cleaner than the broadside version, or it's a lot, I mean, not cleaner is not the right word. It's filthy, but it, like, consent is a key part to it, uh, and, I, and I really like it for that. And it's just good. I just like the tune. Um, it's also impossible to sing. Uh, it changes key signatures. Uh like A.L. Lloyd and uh, I think McCarthy wind up doing a version of it too. And they talk about how when they first recorded the tune from Mr. Morrow in 1938, uh, he seemed to switch key signatures in the middle of it. So he'd be a nine eight, nine eight, and then switch to eight, eight, uh, eight, eight time. And it's just kind of all over the place. It's in a weird kind of range. Um, I remember one of the first times I sang this in a group, it was a fun kind of sing along. We were all enjoying some rum and singing songs and everybody was kind of helping people along by clapping. And when I started singing this, I had to say, don't clap. If you clap, it'll, it'll ruin it. I can't, there's, there's no, the beat goes anywhere in this tune. Um, anyway, so I will leave you with, uh, me singing, singing the Bonnie Black Hair, uh, kind of version mostly off of A.L. Lloyd's recording in the 1960s. You can hear the whole album. I think it's called Bird in the Bush. Uh, where? Yeah, Birds in the Bush, traditional songs of love and lust. Uh, and it, it's a it's a funny, it's a good album from 1965 with lots of 
kind of classy body songs, um, but this one is the least classy. <laughs> it's just really graphic, um, but it's got consent in it, so that's good. Uh, the double entendre is, you know, it's a gun, so it's a guy going off hunting, and so he's going to shoot some bullets at a black hair and then finds a, a lass that he winds up shooting at her black hair instead. And I don't know, it's like they just at a certain point they just give up and like nah forget it we're just singing about sex now uh which is pretty pretty funny uh and obviously there's there's plenty of uh the the idea of an entendre being a gun or shooting a load or something like that is, is pretty widespread but i will just leave you with one more kind of fur trade or ojibwe history tidbit that i always think is interesting uh the ojibwe word for gun is bushkizigan uh, Bushkizigan. The Ojibwe word to ejaculate is Bushkizige. So uh, when Shinabe folks first saw guns, they're like, oh, get the goal, Bushkizigan. Like, this is a thing that ejaculates. All right. Um, and I guess ever since, it has been uh, accused of being a penis substitute uh, for, for men at times. So anyway, uh, thanks for listening to this long episode uh, and this bit of uh, interesting history on the beaver. Uh, next week, uh, I think the next couple weeks, I'm going to be looking at dance tune collections because they are easy to play and worth recording because they're pretty lovely music. And I kind of need, I need to get ready for a presentation I'm going to give on country dance musics, uh, perhaps uh, early in November. So what better way than to dedicate the podcast to playing them? Probably also going to focus on, um, Jackson tunes that show up in dance books because I've been on a bit of a Jackson kick uh, if you are following me on social media and seeing those tunes of the day Uh, anyway thanks for listening let's go out with me singing a song a little nervous about that part Uh, here's the bonnie black hair on the 14th of May at the dawn of the day with me gun on me shoulder till the woods I did stray oh in search of some game and if the weather proved fair to see could i get a shot at that bonny black hair well i met a young girl she was as sweet as a rose and her skin was as fair as the lily that grows i said me young maiden i'm rambling just so can you tell me where that bonny black hair do go well the answer she gave me oh her answer was no, but under me apron some say it does grow, and if you'll not deceive me, I vow and declare we'll go off together to seek that bonny black hair. So I laid this girl down with her face to the sky, and I pulled out me bullets and ramrod likewise. I says, wrap your legs round me, dig in with your heels. The closer we get, love, the better it feels. Well, the birds, they were singing in the bushes and trees, and the song that they sang was, she's easy to please. And I felt her heart quiver and knew what I'd done, saying, oh, lass, have you had enough of me old sporting gun? Oh, the answer she gave me, oh, the answer was nay. It's not often young sportsmen like you come this way. And if your powder's still dry and your bullets play fair, why don't you keep firing at my bonny black hair? Well, my powder's all wasted and my bullets are gone. My ramrod is limber and I cannot fire on. But I'll come back tomorrow if the weather proves fair. And we can go on a-hunting after that bonny black hair.